Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you and any questions that you might have for our guests. And when you're 30s and your 40s, at least for me, it was all the rat race. You know, I wasn't thinking about King Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And I was thinking about making more money, getting the next step, being the announcer on this squad, doing this or this real estate deal. When King Solomon, the wealthiest, wisest person of all time in the history of the world, comes out in Ecclesiastes and it starts out by saying meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. It's all worthless. Everything that you're trying to chase and do just doesn't matter. So now when I share with somebody out there, Yes, we're to go and we're to work hard and to do our things, but have a perspective. And the eternal perspective that I have now allows me to get through any kind of challenge. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. You've probably heard of the Pony Express. Or maybe you're more familiar with the Pony Excess. Either way, there's no doubt that the SMU football team of the 1980s was unforgettable. Today, we're talking to one of their stars, Craig James. He talked to us about life during SMU's heyday, the subsequent fallout, the early days of college game day, and why he chose to go to seminary and what the future might look like. We covered a lot, so sit down, turn it up, and let's hit the ground running with Craig James. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. We have Craig James in the house, at least virtually in the house. Craig, thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, thank you guys for having me. Being an athlete now at my age of 59, I have to remind myself that the reason I'm taking Advil so often is because I was an athlete. It's a price you have to pay. Price you have to pay, but thank you for sharing your story with us today. And I got to tell you, we've got a video podcast up, but you'd look anything but an old guy. So you're doing something in your workout regimen that's doing really, really, really well. So a lot of our listeners know who you are. Spent time in broadcasting, obviously, a lot of time on the gridiron. But we want to start this show by hearing your life story. What was your life like growing up, and what are the experiences that shaped who you are today? Well, I'm from a little East Texas town, and it was the tomato capital of the world at one point in time, and life was really good. My parents, my grandparents believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were at church on Wednesdays and Sundays, and I knew of Jesus. Life changed dramatically for me when my parents divorced at the age of about seven for me, and we moved to Houston with my mother, my brother, and I, and it changed. It was in the survival mode at that point in time. At about 11 years of age, a buddy of mine that I played baseball with asked me if I wanted to go to this Billy Graham revival. I said, yeah, I'll do that. So we go over to the stadium that's packed and listen to Billy Graham. And and I had no idea who I was sitting there listening to, right? And at the invitation at the end, I knowingly walked down that stadium, those bleachers, and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I was about 11 years old at that point. You know, so I've been on this journey. Now I understand what sanctification is. You know, it's a process. There's just, there's no immediate light bulb that goes on. It takes time. And as a freshman at SMU, uh, April the 29th, 1980, I 
after an FCA meeting, I re-upped. I just said, all right, Lord, please help me. I'm really, I'm aware now of my need for you. And so it's been a journey through my life as a Christian. And I married my high school sweetheart. We dated for seven years and finally got married. And we've been married 37. We have four kids and I have six grandkids. I'm Pop C and glad to be a Pop C. That's awesome. As we said, just leading into this, you are a very rich man. I am wealthy beyond wealth management right now. Awesome. So tell us about the start of your high school career. You're in high school and in Texas, big time football. You got on the radar of the guys at SMU. Tell us about what it was like. We've seen Friday Night Lights. We've, you know, the rest of the country has an idea about what high school football is like in Texas. Tell us about the beginning of your career. Okay, so it's, you know, this is where the challenge is trying to take us back into the context of the 70s, me growing up in Houston, Texas. The oil boom, money. I mean, it was Cadillacs, big boots, big hats, everything. And high school football was maybe at its pinnacle back then. It was Mm -hmm. really popular. It was the Friday Night Lights that you're talking about. And so I happened to play on a team that went 15 and 0. We won the state championship in the highest classification. It was the best team that I ever played on, even including my Super Bowl team. I mean, we were really good. And that particular season allowed me to break the state rushing record, single season rushing record. And then next thing you know, I'm being recruited by everybody in the country. Well, I wanted to follow this little blonde that I had met when I was 15 years old to SMU. <laughs> so SMU had a real leg up on the other recruiters out there because my wife, girlfriend then, was already at SMU a year ahead of me. So I committed to SMU just as soon as they said, hey, we've got a scholarship for you. So talk to us about SMU. A lot of us, because ESPN for 30, are familiar with the Pony Express. And as I understand that that's one of the most popular episodes that ESPN's ever done on 30 for 30. Incredible story. What was life like on the campus of SMU during that heyday? It's Dallas. And it was at the time. And Dallas was youthful. It is youthful still to this day. And it was just a dynamic place to be. Ron Meyer, the head coach, out recruited the other guys and he out hustled everybody. And everybody knows about the era of pay for play. Every college campus from coast to coast was recruiting Eric Dickerson and me. So I know, and Eric knew what was going on. It wasn't that SMU was the only school out there doing it. Doesn't mean that it was okay, but Ron Meyer brought a bunch of guys together and said, if you guys come in and play together, we will win and we'll have a chance to win a national championship. We believed him and his enthusiasm. And as soon as we got on campus, it just clicked. It was lightning in a bottle to where you had the Dallas Cowboys, you had Dallas, you had oil, you had gas, you had everything. Yeah. And it was just a booming time. What's it like walking on the field knowing that you could beat any team in the country? And how did that sense of confidence pervade not only the football team, but really the campus in the city? And this is J.R. Ewing, right? This is that whole thing. But what was it like you walk on a football field playing against anybody knowing you could beat them? J.R. Ewing would have had a hard time getting in our locker room. (laughs) (laughs) How bad we thought we were. (laughs) So here we are, freshmen, young kids, and we thought we were good. And we'd been recruited very well. Our sophomore year, we went to Austin to play the University of Texas. They were number two in the country, a great team, historical team. SMU hadn't beaten Texas in like 18 years. Mm-hmm. And man, we came out and we spanked their backside. And that was when we knew that we really were as worthy of the stars on our helmets as we thought we were, right? Mm-hmm. And from that point on, when we walked on the field, we knew we were going to beat you. 
And unless we beat ourselves, we were going to beat you. And so it really became a contagious thing. A lot of these high school kids in the state of Texas wanted to play in Dallas for SMU. And it just, it was a snowball. Yeah. So some of our listeners probably don't know that uh, SMU stands for Southern Methodist University. And so obviously faith became real to you before you got on campus. You mentioned before that in 1980, you rededicated your life to Christ. What did it feel like to live out your faith on campus during that time when as 18, 19, 20-year-olds, you're heralded um, as being demigods in that type of an environment, in that type of culture? How'd you wrestle with your faith then? Man, that's a great question. And I wish that more people knew the character of our team. Mm. We are branded as a death penalty team, which we had nothing to do with, but we were lumped in with the, with the way that things came down. Eric Dickerson loves Jesus Christ. Eric and I are very good friends to this day. I had, we had so many teammates that loved the Lord, mm. and, and, and that was never reported. It's never talked about today. We had extremely high uh, values in our locker room. We had fun. But our team monitored and engaged itself. We had a really strong Fellowship of Christian Athletes program there. And so our faith in our locker room was something that, that uh, no one rammed down your throat. We all just, there was a, an, an understanding that there were a lot of guys in that locker room who loved Jesus Christ. So take us into life after the death penalty SMU. I don't think that anything like that has been handed, was handed out before or since. Do you feel that the punishment was deserved? Uh, probably. Uh, probably, mm. but but if you're going to do it to us, then that there were a yeah. whole host of schools who should have received the death penalty. Um, little SMU was beating the big schools, and that wasn't something that they wanted. And and it hasn't happened since because we've seen how long it's taken SMU to recover from that. Uh, we still suffer from it because we're not in the Big Twelve, and we're in a very good conference, the American Conference. But but if we were in the Big Twelve today, we would be recruiting in the top three class every year because of Dallas, Texas. Craig, man, that's fascinating to think about. You know, a lot of people talk about the death penalty. Will it ever happen again? You know, do you think that college football programs have gotten to the point where they're they're too big to fail? You know, have they come to mean so much to a university that it would not only, you know, punish the athletic program, but the school as a whole? Well, the school suffers, the student suffers because they attend a university, many do, wanting the full experience. And here in Texas, if you're at a school around here and many places in the country, being able to go to a, a football game on a Saturday is part of being a student. I don't think that we'll ever see the death penalty handed down again. There have been many instances that have been of recent in the last 20 years that have been egregious, crazier than handing out a $20 bill and a death penalty was not given to those schools. So I just don't think that we'll ever see the death penalty occur again. It is economics. It's big business, huge business. And uh, because of that, I think that we will never see the death penalty again. So speaking of big business, College Game Day is one of the most popular sports programs on TV. It's hard for us to remember a time without ESPN News, the SEC Network, Big Ten Network. You know, I've heard guys like Mike Tirico and others say that you were one of the pioneers, one of those original voices that brought a unique perspective, confidence, swagger, some personality to college football as a broadcaster. Talk about how commentating games in college football has changed over the years. So when I started at ESPN in 1991, I mean, ESPN was really just getting its legs. And it was where on Thursday nights you went and everybody watched Thursday night college football. There weren't five outlets. And during college game day, 
Lee Corso, Chris Fowler, and I, we knew that for that period of time, those five years, we were researching Monday through Friday to share with you, the viewer and listener, what was happening at Happy Valley or at USC or at Florida State or at the University of Texas or Texas A&M. So we were conveying and releasing the news. We didn't have all this technology that you have today. I remember when ESPN came to me, I don't know when it was, uh, it'll been somewhere in the 92 or three or four range. And they had this thing called the internet and a chat room that they wanted me to host. And they gave me a little symbol that made sure everybody knew that really was me. And we would get like 100 or 200 people in this room. And they were like, man, that is unbelievable. That's huge, right? I was in a period of time where it was unique and you had a responsibility. You had a privilege to hold that microphone. And for me to ask Bobby Bowden, Coach Bowden, what do you think about the national championship? What do you think about another missed field goal? And it was a privilege back then. Certainly a privilege. One of the privileges I can imagine is just the kind of games, the spectacle of games that you've been to. Take us through a couple of the top ones. What are some of the top calls you look back on? That stands out in my mind would be the very first game that I did in the swamp. And it was the A team and ESPN said, hey, Craig, would you mind being a sideline reporter for us on this Saturday night game, Tennessee at Florida? And I was brand new to the business. I said, sure, I'll do that. It was raucous, man. It was loud. It was so loud that no one can understand. I couldn't even think myself. And I was pumped about it. And that was my first introduction to the swamp. And I finally, after many years, realized, never pick against Florida in the swamp. (laughs) They're going to (laughs) win. 90 plus percent of the time, they're going to win down there because their crowd, their fans are awesome. I think back to the 06 Rose Bowl and USC and Texas, number one versus number two. And being on that field, watching and being a part of the announced team, Vince Young, Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, a phenomenal, phenomenal display of athleticism. I think back to the Iron Bowls, any game between Auburn and Alabama, it was true hatred, passion. I mean, they did not like each other. And it was just intense. So announcing a Florida-Georgia game, same kind of deal. There's a real passion to want to win by the fans. And that's what makes college football so special. Certainly is, certainly is special. You know, many know you as a broadcaster, but fewer might be familiar with the entrepreneurial ventures in broadcasting. You know, today we've got former players like Tony Romo paid it, what is it, a reported 17 million per season. It's big business. But back in the day, you had a school for broadcasting and friends from ESPN and the networks came in and taught some classes. Tell us about that venture. My first venture into entrepreneurship was I was a junior at SMU and I wanted to have a car leasing and sales business. So I went and found a bank that would give me a $20,000 line of credit. I was not an SMU guy. I went and found this and pitched the guy on what I was trying to accomplish. I had to have a billboard that was five feet tall with five parking lot spots so that I could get my car dealer's license. So I was brokering Mazda RX-7s and Honda Accords. I'd mark them up two or 300 bucks a piece. In college, you know, making 600 bucks on a couple of cars a month, that's a big deal. And so as Mustang car sales and leasing, the athletic director called me in after several months of realizing what I was doing. He said, hey, what are you doing using my logo? I said, what do you mean your logo? It's a Mustang. It's, <laughs> it's free. I can use that Mustang out there. That was my first venture into economics, understanding what it interest rates do to the bottom line, uh, you know, how you have to move things, how you have to be yeah. responsible. And ever since then, I've always had different businesses going in my life. And I've now 
gotten to a point in my time through like situations with the broadcasting school where we train 15, 20, 25 coaches and players a year. We created a company that ultimately Mark Cuban came to me when he had his broadband and he said, hey, I want to let's partner on this thing. And I missed the partnership because my partner was Ross Pro Jr. And we had this really vibrant business. And I had video content that was being provided for the internet, the original video content provider for Yahoo and the Sporting News. And Mark said, I need content. Craig, you need distribution. I wanted 50% of Mark's company and he wanted to give us 10%. So it did not happen. Some guy blew the deal from Ross Pro's side. And about two years later, Cuban sold his company for $5.5 billion and he sent me an email and he said, CJ, you know how much 10% of 5.5? Oh my goodness. That's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. So that's called life's lessons. And uh, <laughs> oh yes, I've been, hey, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. Uh, most people know me just as a broadcaster or a football player, but I've enjoyed the challenges of going out and working in the real street. So recently, Craig, you've become a little bit of a renaissance man. You just graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. What inspired you to go back to school? Well, so in 2011, that was my last broadcast season. 2012, I resigned from broadcast so that I could run for the U.S. Senate seat in Texas. And I felt the Lord calling me to do that. I still to this day believe that. Now I'm more understanding of why he did that. It wasn't for me to win. It was for me to transition to where I am in life today. And so after about that point in time, you know, I wasn't retired because I still was doing my real estate business. But I wasn't passionate about anything. And I couldn't get away from Matthew where it says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things to take care of themselves. So as some things lined up, next thing you know, I'm applying for graduate school, Dallas Seminary, and get accepted, had no idea what I was doing. And it was four years of intense studying and learning. And really for me, helping me to better understand really a simplified message. I have a purpose in life, and that is to go and to share. And it makes life a lot easier for me. I think a lot of us, you know, not only are there athletes that listen to this podcast, of course, but we've got a lot of crossover because we've got the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast and the Faith Driven Investor podcast. And I think that there are a good number of people that are out there in the marketplace that wish they could go back to seminary. And the reality is that most of them, including myself, could. We could take it virtually or we could do what you've done. What's something that God taught you about him that you had known that was a surprise from four years in seminary. I love the song. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. And I think what God really let me know is that I thought I was a somebody. And saying, hey, you ain't no somebody. I'm the somebody. I'm bringing you down to a nobody so you can go tell everybody about the somebody who makes a difference in your life. That's, oh, that's what great. Really happened. And you know, there are a lot of gobbledygook words that you learn in seminary. At the end of the day, what have you done about Jesus? You're either with me or against me. That's what Jesus says. What has someone personally done about Jesus? Not your friend or your mother, your brother, your sister, your cousin. What have you done about Jesus? And I think that is the most pressing question that every person must have to deal with. So talk a little bit more about that. When you look at that journey, I love how you say that you understand why God took you through that season to better understand where you're today. When somebody points to the identity of, you know, athletic career, even what we've done today, diving into some of these fun experiences and stories, how has it changed how you look back on those, how you tell those, how you see those opportunities kind of in retrospect? 
Well, again, I'm 59 years old. So now that I'm getting some experience and wisdom about my life, and I look back on the beach and I see the footprints, and now I can better see how well, I didn't understand this step or that step, and why did that happen? But now I can see the connecting of the dots on the beach. And when you're 30s and your 40s, at least for me, it was all the rat race. You know, I wasn't thinking about King Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And I was thinking about making more money, getting the next step, being the announcer on this squad, doing this or this real estate deal. When King Solomon, the wealthiest, wisest person of all time in the history of the world, comes out in Ecclesiastes and it starts out by saying meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. It's all worthless. Everything that you're trying to chase and do just doesn't matter. So now when I share with somebody out there, yes, we're to go and we're to work hard and to do our things, but have a perspective. And the eternal perspective that I have now allows me to get through any kind of challenge. And it's being wired as a human being. I want to jump back into how can I resolve this thing? I got to figure this out. Well, don't figure it out. Go really pray about it and see if God can help you with it. So take us into a day in the life of Craig today. What does it look like? You mentioned that I think that you're doing some land development with your son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I basically was an entitlement real estate guy developer. We, back in the 2000s, bought big ranches, ran them, would uh, carve them into 700, 800,000, 1500 acre ranches, bought a 27,000 acre place one time and was going to turn it into a wind farm. Uh, it's too many political maneuvers had to get through on that. So I <laughs> sold it as a dairy farm. And then I've just kind of moved into where we live in arguably the hottest county, one of in America, Collin County. And it's just a ton of growth that's coming right in the middle of where we are. And so my son, Adam, was one of my two boys. He was out in Midland in the old business. And I talked him into coming back and joining me. And so we go find opportunities and we have two or three single family developments and we have commercial projects that we do. And the red flags that I used to try to figure out how to get around in business they're thrown up as a red flag for a reason. And every time I've justified those, tried to justify those, they've bit me in the backside. And so now I'm trying to be a wiser developer and investor in what I do. So we talk a lot about a faith-driven entrepreneur and faith-driven investor, this idea of willfulness versus faithfulness. How do we be faithful to the opportunities that God brings to us versus willful? And I think that kind of pushes into some of the things that you're mentioning of not trying to bust down a door that God might not be intending to open. When you look at where God has you in this season, where are you seeing God show up in the work that you're doing? Well, this morning is an example. You know, I wake up, have Bible study that I do on Friday mornings with my group. And then this project that we have, this development, here comes this truck that shows up with this big sign on his yellow pickup that says, Jesus Christ will save your life. Well, I want to highlight that. I go out, I say hello to that man. Hey, way to go, man. Thumbs up. I'm a business owner and I, man, I applaud you for your confidence in Jesus Christ. I post that on Instagram. I have a chance whenever I see certain subcontractors come around that I go and I can visit with them. I can lift them up. I can share the gospel. There are countless day-to-day opportunities for me to share, whether it's a banker, an architect, an engineer, a lawyer, a guy that's working, putting pipeline in one of our projects, I'm able to go. I use the business as my ministry. And I happen to bring in enough money that supports our ministry. And there's a genuineness there. And I think the Lord knows my son Adam's heart, my heart. And he knows that we wholeheartedly 
are trying to do his will on a daily basis. I think that the association of people, you know, if you hang around fire, you're going to get burned. And I think I heard that many times through my life and I finally taken it to heart. It's not that I don't do business. You know, Jesus went to the well. He didn't just hang out with all the good guys. He went around those who needed to hear the truth. And I am not afraid of the truth. And I'm trying to get better now at sharing compassionately with someone without having them feel like I'm judging them. That's not my job. You know, God took us off the hook there, said, you guys aren't qualified to judge. Don't do it, right? So I think now someone seeing my actions and how I walk around and how I act is far more powerful than what I say to them. And I, number two, the other thing that I've gotten better about, I'm huge on this thing. You know, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him, right? And people used to get mad at me. That's fighting words. Many people will get okay with you when you start talking about God or Jesus. But when you tell someone that there's one bus to heaven, that's fighting words. That's a line in the sand. So I've gotten better about saying, I did not say that. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so I feel like in my day-to-day walk, I am an absolute fool. And I could get off of this conversation here now and have some random crazy thought enter my mind. That's how incapable I am. But I've gotten better now about the Lord and the Holy Spirit that indwells me, moving me to try to be a righteous guy. I'm never going to be perfect. We all sin and fall short of the glory of the Lord. But I'm trying. And I think that's where I've matured into the season where I am. That's really good. That's extremely helpful. We like to end every one of the podcasts that we have just hearing a little bit more from what you're learning, maybe even today, if, if you know, to put you on the spot, maybe today, maybe yesterday in reading God's Word. You've shared a lot of great biblical truth with us, including just with that answer right there. Anything else, or maybe even uh, because you have just shared, although you could absolutely build on it, Maybe something that has been a good discipline for you in engaging with God's Word. Do you do it with other guys? Just talk to us a little bit about how you engage in the Bible. Great, great question, Henry. I have said for years that I try to wake up each day and begin with prayer and some study. In honesty, you know, I would get up and I would catch a devotional on my cell phone, you know, and, and that's better than nothing, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But what I found where I get a peaceful day is when I really get up and I'll spend time reading his word and studying his word. And I'm not talking about reading two or three pages. I'm talking about reading two or three lines or sentences and asking who, what, where, why, how, when, what's he talking about? What's the Lord trying to say in this sentence? And so when I study wholeheartedly, I find more peace in my day. That's a fact. And I'm able to now, when I put my head on my pillow at night, I try to think of times during the day how I acted or reacted to a certain situation. And, and it makes a difference. Yeah, that really resonates. You know, we've got a good group of our audience that are our investors because the faith-driven investor part. And investors invest in pattern recognition. And ultimately, I think that we want to enjoy God and know him forever or know God and enjoy him forever. And when you see doing different things, and then that seems to line up your day better to have more joy, you're like, I should probably do more of that. But it's amazing how some of the things that would seem so obvious take us to where, like, you and I are in our 50s, 
to the fact that like it really just sets in. My hope is that in listening to this podcast, we're going to have lots of people who are younger than we are that are able to just like, you know what? Gosh, I want to take a shortcut. If Craig James has figured out at age 59 what the secret for intimacy is for God, maybe I just kind of trust in that and lean into it a little bit more with a little more discipline because of this conversation I just heard. Man, and it's your heart. The four most often mentioned words and or names in the Bible in this order, Lord, God, Jesus, and Father. Lord's 80-something hundred times, depending on the translation. God's in there at 4,000. And then Jesus and Father's at about 1,500 times. The next most mentioned name and or word, heart, Mm. 800-ish times. And so God wants our heart involved with him. I think that's intentional. He mentions the heart all the time in the Bible. So I want to wholeheartedly seek him. If I'm not, I put the word down. I'll stop reading. If I'm distracted and flustered, not with the word, I'm not going to waste my time because that's wasting God's time. And so with a true wholehearted heart, try to open the word, try to pray and seek him and you'll find him. It's not a game of hide and seek. God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. You know, it's knock and I'm here. I'm there for you. It's not hide and seek. I got one last question for you. We never do this. We never have a question after the final question about what's God telling you in his word. But as I think back to this podcast and I think about Texas and West Texas oil and money and then Dallas and Houston, and there's so much money that's involved in professional sports and in Texas and in land development and investment over your 59 years, and then really spending time, of course, in the last four at DTS, what has God taught you about money? It's fleeting. It just doesn't matter. I had a neighbor back in the 90s. We had a lake house, and he had a sign on his boathouse that said, he who dies with the most wins. Mm. And I was talking about toys. And I was like, well, you know, that kind of like bothered me then. But now as I think about it, People who pursue money and things are always trying to find stuff to fill the void. Yeah. And we've been blessed to have made a lot of money in our lives. And I think you would agree it's nice to have, but it's not fulfilling. It's like the word joy. I've never come across a person who uses the word joy in their vernacular who isn't a Christian. How can you have joy if you don't have the Lord? And yeah. and so while the times in my life, and I have had my priorities out of whack at times. And honestly, you know, I've had work number one, family number two, God number three. But in those times, I was always finding the next day, a better car, bigger car, more expensive car, bigger house, bigger boat house, bigger boat. And you're always chasing that something. And it just is not filling. And the one thing that does fill and never changes is God Almighty and Jesus Christ. And uh, I I was blessed to have gone to Israel a year ago. Uh, The Holy Lands are unbelievable. And it's undeniable. The Lord walked the earth and he will come back. Yeah. Is there one ministry that you like, that you give to, you and your wife give to, that you think is really doing great work out there in the world that you think our audience should know about? I'm a big fan of our pastor, Jack Graham, of Tony Evans, John MacArthur, Greg Laurie, David Jeremiah, yeah. men like that who have big, wide-ranging outreach out through their TV and their radio, the pulpit, man, they're making a difference, and we support them so that they can go, go do their thing. Well, that makes sense. It was their predecessor, Billy Graham, that led you to the Lord at age 11, so that makes all the sense in the world. Well, Craig, I'm really grateful for your time with us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for uh, sharing with us today. 
and I'm just grateful for you. I'm glad our paths have crossed. I appreciate you guys having me and uh, blessings to us all. As we finish each episode, we like to spotlight a ministry at the intersection of faith and sports. Sports Spectrum. It's a magazine and website ministry there to help equip, encourage, and use the platform of sports to share the gospel. You can learn more about Sports Spectrum at sportsspectrum.org. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you. And it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 